And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Lawrence Wright is a national treasure. The author of 14 nonfiction and fiction books, six plays and several screenplays and documentaries, Wright is a master storyteller. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his riveting work, The Looming Tower, which traced the evolution of Al-Qaeda and the U.S. government failures that led to the 9-11 attacks. Every piece he writes in The New Yorker is a must-read. His latest book, a novel called Mr. Texas, is a rollicking satire about politics in his home state. We sat down in Austin last week for a conversation I hope you'll enjoy as much as I did. Lawrence Wright, it's great to see you. I have to say I've done this for eight years now, 570 or whatever podcasts, and I don't do a lot of fanboying, not the way I roll, but it's really a thrill to be with you because I think you're um, as good, maybe the best journalist of our generation, and um, I so appreciate you, and I'm in awe of the volume of your work. So it's, it's, it's great to be with you. Well, I'm honored by your remarks, David. It means a lot to me. I've, I've admired you too, and been very grateful for your contribution to our politics. Yeah, well, I haven't written 14 fantastic books. I haven't written novels and screenplays and plays. I haven't performed plays, and I haven't done the sort of impactful work that you do all the time in print at The New Yorker. But I want to turn the tables on you and and ask you about your own life and how you came to be who you are. So let's just start there. And uh, I I know that you were born in Oklahoma City, is that right? That's right. And your family came over here when you were a kid. What brought them to uh, Texas? Well, my dad was kind of an itinerant banker. And, um, I didn't even know there was such a thing. Well, he, he he was ambitious, and he could, you know, finding a job as a in the bank business in, you know, in the early fifties was hard. He'd just come back from seven years in war. He'd been World War II in Korea, and he had been a lawyer, and he didn't find that to his taste, and so he decided to go into banking. And I think the reason he did is that he grew up in Kansas. Uh, which became the Dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very hard times. And his father, when he was 12 years old, his father took him to the bank to negotiate the crop loan. Huh. And I think that at that moment, he saw which side the power was on. And so, But, you know, he went to a little bank in Ponca City, Oklahoma, and then a, a mid-sized bank in, in Abilene, Texas, and then uh, finally got a a position as president in uh, what was a little bank in a strip shopping center in Dallas, which he made into a a big bank. You know, he was a very successful banker at the end of his career. You did not, however, become a banker. You became a writer, and I suspect that has more to do with your mom. Yeah. uh, My father loved to read, but my, um, my mother was totally absorbed as a reader, and I think that, you know, both of my younger sisters also wrote books. And I think that it, it was a strategy to capture our mother's attention, uh, especially during the summers. We would all go to the library with cardboard boxes and load up with books. It was, it was, it was exciting, you know, just to have so much to choose from. And did you early on know that you, that you wanted to write? You know, it, it was really in high school that I had a teacher sort of call me out and uh, and start assigning me some books that she wasn't assigning to other pe- people in the class, and then when I was in when I was a senior in high school, um, this teacher Elizabeth Inlow, um, she would have us at the, on Friday afternoon, the entire class would choose three words to put into a short story. And it could be, you know, it could be any three words in the whole dictionary, but we had to incorporate them. And it was a puzzle, but it also was kind of a goad to write a short story. And so on Monday, we would come back into class and each read our story. But that was that was the moment, I think, that this is for me. And I got joy out of it. And I I didn't feel that way in chemistry. 
Yeah, it's almost a cliche, but like most cliches, it's true. Almost all of us can point to a teacher yeah. who changed our lives in some way. Yeah. You were in Dallas. You were a teenager in Dallas. And November marks the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. And it, it happened in Dallas. And you've written and spoken about this a lot. Uh, it was a trauma for the country, but it was a different kind of trauma if you were from Dallas, Texas. Talk about that day and the aftermath of it and what it meant to Dallas. Well, I was in algebra class and, um, you know, the three tones came on the PA system and the the principal's voice was all choked and clouded with emotion. And, and it was hard to understand him at first, and, but the I got the words, the president has been shot. And uh, and the, the big clue came when our teacher, Irwin Hill, uh, f- former Chicago Bears player, uh, stood up and tears streaming from his eyes, walked out of the class. And, you know, I, I think at that moment I understood that it was a tragedy and it was a, it, it, that it could bring this big man uh, humble him so deeply. I, it was strange to be from Dallas after that. Uh, people hated us because we were Dallasites. You felt that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, when I went to college, you know, I had operators that wouldn't place my calls to Dallas. Really? I remember one time we were on a family vacation in Mexico, and um, there was another couple at a table next to us, and uh, they overheard our conversation and the husband leans over and where are you from? Uh, we're from Dallas. And they got up and left their meal. Uh, I remember, you know, driving through Mississippi and, you know, we we're on our way to Florida and, uh, stopping for gas and, and this gas station attendant looks into the car and you go get three kids in the back seat and he sticks his head into the window and he says, y'all kill the president. And uh, you know, those really leave marks on you because you realize that people hate you for what you can't change about yourself, that you're, you're from this place. Yeah. Well, uh, we all have memories of that day who are people of a certain age. Yeah. And now we have the benefit of the full blush of history. And when you say to people, these are really challenging times and you're worried about it, people say, well, we've, we've had worse times. The 60s were worse. And in some ways, they, they were more tumultuous, uh, more overtly violent. But somehow, somehow, there was a sense that the institutions would hold mm-hmm. that you don't necessarily have today. I think that's true. Although I, I look back at Dallas in the 60s and late 50s before the assassination. And so much of what we experienced in modern America was characteristic of Dallas, this extreme right mm-hmm. fanaticism. Mm-hmm. And I mean, lunatic type of, you know, for instance, they took out all the, the poppies from the parks because they were red. You know, there was just really? bizarre things. They wouldn't, they refused federal money for school lunches. For, and yeah, just, it was berserk. And, you know, H.L. Hunt was the richest man in the world, and he funded this uh, Lifeline radio, which was kind of a precursor of the, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh and that kind of thing that that became one of the one of the ways in which the right defined, uh, redefined America. So it was all implicit in Dallas at that point. And, uh, and, I've I've said this before, and I don't want people in Dallas to take this the wrong way, but if Kennedy had to be killed somewhere, I'm glad he was killed in Dallas. It changed the city, and it it made it a healthier place. And so it went from this hubris, this crazy hubris, to being humiliated. And in the process of that transformation, it discovered humility. So in drawing that uh, in drawing that analogy, and I and I. I think it's it's important to remember that. Do you see lessons from that? Can the fever break? Well, look what it took to break the fever in Dallas. You know, I, I think that something has to happen to change, you know, the cor- current course that we're on. But I fear— We did have awful. an insurrection. Well, that's true, too. And, you know, uh, we think of 
we think of, you know, the kind of civil war being between the extreme right and the Antifa and something like that. But honestly, in Texas, you're beginning to see the Republicans turning on each other. And I don't know if they're going to start drawing down their guns, but, you know, in part it's because uh, liberals are so marginal in Texas that uh, there's no one bothering to fight against them. Uh, But the animosity and the personal nature of it is dismaying. And I don't know where it'll lead, but looking back at the assassination is a sober reminder of where it could go. You belonged to a youth ministry when you were in high school, and you've talked about the faith community, that the community yeah. uh, was really important. And you've written quite a bit about religion in different contexts, uh, you know, whether it was uh, Islamic extremism or um, Scientology or, you know, you've written about many different aspects of this. Tell me about that, about why religion holds such interest to you? I think because I was a pious teenager, I've understood, you know, how faith can exert so much force in a person's behavior. You know, we talk about politics all the time. People can have strong political beliefs, and it doesn't affect the way they behave at all. And yet, if you have strong religious beliefs, it it tends to dictate uh, every aspect of your life. And so, as a reporter, I always thought it was you know, something that shouldn't be left on the table. I've written about so many different faith groups. And one of the things that I took away from that is so often when I talk about beliefs, you know, the answer would be, well, we believe this. And I was focusing on the nouns that followed, you know, rather than the pronoun that began the sentence, we believe. It's the we that, you know, essentially is the organizing principle of religion. People come together together for the community. And a lot of times, you know, I've written about Scientology and Mormons and Amish and I mean just a ton of different religions, but sometimes it seems to me that the fringier the organization, the more devout the membership because you have to climb over this fence of disbelief and subscribe to something that outsiders would say is utterly ridiculous. You went to Tulane and then when you graduated, you were con- it was the height of the Vietnam War. Yeah. You became a conscientious objector, and you went and taught at the uh, uh, at the American School in in Egypt. I guess in Cairo. Yeah, American University in Cairo. I would guess that a lot of your peers in Texas served. Yeah. In that war, was it hard to declare yourself a conscientious objector? And did you were you ostracized for doing that? Uh, what about your dad who did? Who? Yeah, that was the hardest part was, you know, Vietnam was in some respects a war between the generations in America. And my father and I had the bitterest quarrels. You know, the dinner table was a, you know, battle zone. And I wanted to be like him. You know, he was, you can see he's got some of his medals up here. Yeah. And um, so we're sitting in your study. We yeah. should point that out now. And uh, I was in ROTC. You know, I mean, I had uh, I had a desire to serve, but I also had uh, a sense that this war was cruelly wrong and a, a mistaken uh, move on our part. And I I was really torn. I, you know, I, I felt I I wanted to be a patriot and go serve my country, but I also thought, would I be serving my country to prosecute this war? There was a there was a morning in the summer uh, before my senior year where I decided I was going to join the Marines and be a medic. <laughs> so that was going to be my solution. And uh, I went down to uh, the post office where all these kids, they, the buses were coming in from the rural areas and all these kids had been drafted and they were going to the post office to sign up. And uh, I, I went in, I hadn't been drafted and uh, you know, you strip down to your underwear and, you know, you go through all these tests and then you line up in rows, you know, like real soldiers and um, then say the Pledge of Allegiance and then take one step forward and you're in the Army or the Marines. And everybody stepped forward but me. And I thought, what am I doing? 
I, I, I really was like in a fugue state, you know, standing there in my underwear, wondering, you know, who am I and what kind of American am I that I want to be here and I can't take that step. And uh, so my final year in school was all about, do I go to Canada? Uh, should I just go to prison, which is, you know, the other alternative? But then I discovered that for a middle-class white kid, there were plenty of alternatives. My father arranged a lunch with the uh, the head of the um, the Army Reserve, in, which is in Dallas. All the Dallas Cowboys went into that. And so he was going to get me into that. So we sat at lunch with this general, and, and I thought— it was so creepy, you know, <laughs> just to to be able to exercise privilege like that was morally repellent to me. And then my family doctor said, I can find something wrong with your kidneys. And once again, I thought, <laughs> you know, there was this, who am I? Am I the kind of person that would take the privilege that I've been born into and and use it to avoid a war that I don't want to go to and somebody else will have to take my place? It was it was a really it was a terrible moral compromise and I just you know I was so angry at the country I was I was angry at my dad I was angry at his whole you know greatest generation that had gotten us into Vietnam in the first place I was just but I was so typical of of boys my age you know mm-hmm. that we were I think had it been World War II we would have all joined mm-hmm. and um, anyway. I filed to be a conscientious objector, and to my astonishment, I was granted that status in Dallas, Texas. It just floored me, and I had two weeks to find a job, <laughs> So, and typically they're the bedpan jobs, And um, but it was during the Nixon um, semi-depression, and you know there, was, there were no such jobs available. People were taking them, and also the requirements were that it, you had to live— 50 miles from, it had to be 50 miles from home, had to pay very little, and it had to be nominally in the interest of the United States. So I went to New York and I thought, I'm going to go to the UN and they'll give me a job that pays very little and sends me far, far away. And uh, the lady at the desk said, no, we don't do that. But here's a list of American institutions abroad. And the American University in Cairo had an office across the street at 866 UN Plaza. And so I walked across the street, not knowing that we had no diplomatic relations with Egypt at the time. I don't think I knew exactly what language they spoke. I didn't know anything. I knew they'd had a war, but it wasn't the war that of interest to me. And so 30 minutes after I walked in, they said, can you leave tonight? And I said, no, I can't leave tonight. My girlfriend's back in Boston. I haven't told my parents what I'm up. Can you leave tomorrow? Yeah, I'll go tomorrow. <laughs> next day I flew and landed at midnight and nine the next morning I taught my first class. And it was a wonderful experience, David. I, I mean, it, it took a very provincial boy like I was in Dallas, Texas, in the middle of America, and put him into another world where it's a very poor country, adorable students. I just had the greatest time teaching them. And um, it, it taught me a lot about who I was, but also who I was as an American. And I would, in, over the, a long career, I've spent a lot of time in poor and tyrannical countries. And I will never... This you know devalue the U.S. passport that allows me to get out of there. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I know that all those people that I talk to, oftentimes they're just trapped in a in a in a life that will never be as fulfilling as mine was. You came back and you wanted to make it as a journalist. Yeah, I know Walker Percy was your yeah. hero, and and you wrote about him and you met him, and he was a mentor of yeah. yours, the the great novelist. Was it an economic decision? Did you figure if, if, I, if I'm going to write, I got to get paid for it? <laughs> I had, first of all, I had the idea that I wanted to be a writer, but that turns out to be quite an open question because what kind of writer would I be? And I thought, I'll be a poet in Greenwich Village. You know, first of all, I didn't read poetry. I don't <laughs> don't care for it very much. And so I had no idea about. So the, that seemed like a bad idea. That probably, and, yeah. and you know, the cost of real estate in Greenwich Village was yeah. like ridiculous. Are yeah. you kidding, poets? So uh, 
And uh, I didn't have enough experience in the world, really, to write a novel. But also, I found out that people will pay you for information. And that's what a journalist is able to get. So that was the only way I could get into the writing game. And I'm really grateful for it because I wish a lot of young people would do this like you did when you were, you know, a young newspaper man. You know, when you're a reporter, you have to go out and see other people's perspectives. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that we just don't do now. I think the thing you learn is the most important uh, thing you can do is listen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I always tell young people who want to go into journalism, you have to go in being prepared to be surprised. You know, you have to go in being prepared to learn things that you never suspected. Or don't want to know. Right. You know, that things controvert your worldview. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, back to the show. Tennessee, like a decade before you were there, right. and John Lewis led the lunch counter protests yeah. in Tennessee. Yeah. Did you? Is that what you wanted to do? Is that what was available to you? It was what was available. I mean, I it was an interesting time because it was just at the moment that I decided that I was going to go get a job in a newspaper, and I was looking to look through New Orleans and Atlanta and places like that. At that moment, the newspapers realized that. They were staffed by people exactly like me, young white men, and they didn't want any more. <laughs> and so I, I got this everywhere I went, you know, and, uh, and it turned out the only place I could get a job was at the Race Relations Reporter. They didn't have any black writers. Was at this the time. at the Tennessean or was it? No, it was an independent. It was funded by the Ford Foundation mm -hmm. and also the Reader's Digest Foundation. Uh -huh. And uh, it was an interesting uh, it had just gone out of business uh, several months before, and they lost their staff. And uh, and then they got a new grant, and so I was the one knocking on the door. So I they called me the white writer, and I was the only writer there for most of the time I was there. And it was, once again, a blessing for me to be exposed to central uh, social problem of our, of our country's history at that time. Were you, having grown up in Texas, was uh, were race relations a topic in your household, or was this was it something you thought about a lot before you took this job? You know, it wasn't until I got to Tulane University that uh, see i I graduated from high school in 1965, and that was 11 years after Brown v. Board of Education. Never had a black or even a brown student in my entire academic you know, undergraduate career, high school career. There was, I think, one or two, uh, there were, I think there were only two black students at Tulane when I got there. And um, I got to know one of them because I had organized a trip to Guatemala. And because uh, no one else was going to have to room with the black guy, <laughs> and I was the leader, I got to room with him. And that was, that was, a, you know, it opened my eyes. But I honestly, I feel so ashamed by the fact that I had so little interchange with people of other races. And, you know, we were, Dallas was very segregated. And um, 
I, I, you know, when they finally desegregated in Dallas, it was a typical Dallas thing to do. And Stanley Marcus, perhaps the greatest man that lived in Dallas at that time, uh, simply accepted a black couple in the restaurant at Neiman Marcus. And the word went out, you know, that, you know, officially Dallas was desegregated because Neiman Marcus opened its doors. As, as I knew would happen, I've got five hours of things to ask you in a one-hour podcast. I'll try to be brief. No, no, no. I want you to no, know. This yeah. is all on me. Yeah. But I do want you to tell this one story that I read about a guy who went out and killed a, a black person out oh, of yeah. outrage, a guy in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. Tell, I'm going to have to call up his name, though. I, I'm, I'm blocking on it. Well, now. that was a long time ago. But you yeah. do remember him slamming you you had reported that he was he was uh he told me uh, i asked him about his the trigger that you know set him off and uh, he said that he was sitting in his watching tv at the watts riots and uh, i described him as pounding the dust out of his armchair and um he had some friends in the clan he was in the clan uh, but he had some of his clan friends um uh, he w- he went downtown with his deer hunting rifle and shot the first black man he saw and then he some of his clan friends went to the hospital and while the surgeons were removing the bullet they took the bullet out so that there'd be no uh evidence and uh and he told me this and uh he was essentially confessing to a murder and I, I was kind of dumbfounded. You know how how can how can you say these things to me? And I thought that as soon as the article is published, you know they're going to come for him. That never happened. And he wrote me a letter saying, "How dare you? There's no dust in my wife's armchair." <laughs> and uh, so uh, he, but he was an interesting figure because he ran for school board with black support. And, um, you know, it was a case in which there was a recognition that our problems were not so much about race, but about class. And, you know, this is a, I think it's a place that we're at again. I mean, we've never really not been there, but we tend to mistake the problem for something that's easy to see rather than something that's harder to solve. Yeah. C.P. Ellis. I'm sorry, it took me That's a while okay. to call That's up. That's right, I could see. see you were searching. Yeah. So you returned to Texas. Uh, I know that you've written and talked about, you You wanted to leave Texas, which is why you yeah. went to Tulane. You came back to Texas after this. Why did you come back to Texas? Well, I was writing about uh, the 12 men that walked on the moon on the 10th anniversary of you know the moon landing. So this was 1979, and... I um, one of the astronauts was then walking on Fredericksburg, this little Czech community in central Texas. And um, I flew into Austin and drove down to Fredericksburg, and they put me in the Prince Psalm Inn. Um, and it was cute. You know, they gave me the library room, and it had a four-poster bed and, you know, books all around. And I thought, oh, I'll go down, and um, they had a Rathskeller, and I'll go down and have a a beer and a brat and, and then walk around the town square and read a book. I, I, that would be my expectation. And I went down and Frank Bailey, who's Kay Bailey Hutchison's younger brother, she was a senator from mm-hmm. Texas. And he was the restaurant critic for Texas Monthly. And I told him my plan and he totally scotched it. We went out driving around the hill country, stopped at a steakhouse where you could order steak by the inch and he ordered a three-inch steak, rare. It bled all over the plate. Honestly, it was one of the most disgusting meals I ever <laughs> passed through. And then we started going to dance halls and wound up at Green Hall, uh, G-R-U-E-N-E. And Asleep at the Wheel was playing. Yeah. And, uh, my one of my current, favorite bands. Yeah, is it? Well, yeah. Floyd Domino, uh, is my piano teacher, was playing then. And... Uh, and uh, it, it, there were all these people that were dancing and you know the music sounded so familiar the food was familiar and uh, everything just spoke to me that this is home as much as i disliked so much about texas i couldn't get away from the fact that it was me 
And uh, so as it happened, you know, through uh, sheer coincidence, uh, a Texas Monthly editor called me up a couple of months after my article came out. And uh, he's, he wanted me to write a story for them. And by the end of the conversation, he had hired me. And I said, I'd like to come back to Texas. So uh, that was in 1980. And um, so we've been here ever since. It was a period of time when I thought I will never write about Texas again because I don't want to be a regional writer. And that went on for decades until my editor at The New Yorker, David Remnick, asked mm -hmm. me to explain Texas because nobody at that magazine understands why I live here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I believe that. Yeah. I, I believe that. Um I wanted to see you because I read your wonderful new novel, Mr. Texas, which is a kind of, well, it's a satire about Texas politics with some fictional characters and some real names mentioned. And it is just a, a wonderful book. And I'm not going to give away any of the plot because people should buy it and read it. It's incredibly enjoyable. But I mentioned to you before we started, there's a there's a character in the book, and I won't say who the character is because it will ruin the thing when you read the book, yeah. uh, who runs for Speaker of the House, a Republican, and delivers a very impassioned speech at the end. And I couldn't help thinking that he was speaking for you yeah, and the kind of Texas that you would like to see. Tell me about that and why you, why you put your words in, in his mouth. Well, I couldn't keep away from wanting the character to be right be noble you know he's funny I, I think he's an amusing figure you know I think he's a comic figure in many ways but sincere and um, I'm so worried about the state and and worried about the country because uh, so much that originates in Texas spreads you know and so much of it is not good and I, I think about why we have these political entities like states and cities and nations and so on. And, you know, there are really only two things they need to do. One is to create opportunities. And honestly, Texas has done an amazing job of that. And Austin in particular, yeah, right. just so fabulous how much work has been created here. The other obligation is to create community. And this is where we fail. We're, we're creating disunity. It's, it's it, it, Larry, uh, it, Disunity, it turns out, is profitable in many ways. Yeah. Anger, outrage, profitable in many ways. Profitable to media outlets, social media outlets, and to politicians in a very divided right. country. And we're such easy marks for, you know, actors like in Russia and, and even North Korea. You know, uh, they, they've they got us figured out. With Texas, it's... The, the big concern I have is that we underestimate how important Texas is. You know, it will be double in size by the year 2050. It'll be the size of New York and California combined. Each of those states lost uh, an electoral vote, a Congress, congressional seat this past census, and both of them went to Texas. So Texas is growing. It's already, you know, central to our politics, but it is becoming dominant. It is going to be the game. And if if we keep going in the direction that we seem stuck in, then it's going to be terrible for the nation. You just had a trial in your state, yeah. in the state Senate this past weekend, and the state attorney general, who uh, seemed to be implicated in a whole lot of chicanery and tawdry exercises and so on and had been impeached by the Republican House escaped conviction what did that say about the state you know it's Texas has historically not been corrupt I mean every state has its stories and you're living in Illinois where you had four governors in prison some serving overlapping terms you know yes. that never happened in Texas we only impeached one statewide official in our entire history it was a uh, James Pa Ferguson in 1917, and then after he was impeached and thrown out of office, Ma we elected, Ferguson, yes. we elected yeah, Ma his Ferguson wife. came in, yeah. <laughs> so apparently Texans didn't take it too seriously. But, you know, I've, there have been scandals, 
but they haven't been big scandals. Uh, there have been crazy shows like this chicken magnate, Bo Pilgrim, that walked out on the floor of the state Senate where this trial took place. This is 20 years ago, but had passed out checks for $10,000 to his supporters. You know, it was all open. And what happened with the Paxton trial, you know, bear in mind the impeachment in the House was by an overwhelming majority of Republicans. And they saw what was up. And but these two two legislative halves of our state, the Senate and the House, hate each other. And it's personal. It's not partisan. It's something different. And uh, you know the the attacks between Dan Patrick, our lieutenant governor, and uh, the speaker, yeah. and speaker, yeah, uh, Dade Phelan. Um, it's intensely personal, and what I see happening in this, you know, this is kind of a mini Trump experience. You know, this guy is clearly guilty of some really bad behavior. He's been indicted for the last eight years on securities fraud, and that's never come to trial. So, you know, there there's a lot of stuff going on with him, and he should be held to account. But like Trump, he's not being. And I in fact, think, Trump was deeply invested in him. He was well, a Trump guy. He and it back, became tribal, didn't it? It was yes. like, you, you know, you, you can't convict him because he's a member of our tribe. And Paxton and Dan Patrick are the primary Trump supporters mm -hmm. in Texas. You know, they, uh, Patrick was his campaign, Trump's campaign manager in Texas. So, you know, they are, as you say, of that tribe. But, uh, but apparently during this procedure, you know, Patrick put the screws on yeah. and he dominates that body. There are 31 senators and uh, they are completely enthralled to him the power of the lieutenant governor in this state is legendary any lieutenant governor you know you run the senate you have, decide who committee chairs are going to be and so on but it was i thought for trump it was it was an a menacing auguring i think yeah i think it is yeah. it's chilling honestly yeah. that you know that we pass by corruption i think the message of trump is that the world is the hunger games that there's nothing legitimate the strong take what they want, right? The weak fall away, uh, and that everybody does it. Just some people are not owning up to it. It's a terrible message for a democracy. It is, and you know, it's a question about whether our democracy will be able to steer through all this. And you know, as we talked about, um, whether Trump wins or loses, you know, the the prospect for you know horrible, violent discord uh, is really stark. Uh, I, in some ways, I just wish that we could start the, with a different tablet, you know, a different set of candidates that might be able to avoid, you know, these kinds of violent collisions that seem so likely to stare us in the face right now. Let me just stipulate that you've written brilliant works on a wide range of subjects and i'm just i can't i could do a whole show on each of them including scientology and jonestown and we talked about religion and twins and uh, the camp david accords yeah. and just a an incredible array and anybody who reads new yorker is familiar with your work but i have to ask you about the one that you you will be most remembered for the one that you won the Pulitzer Prize for. But the predicate is you decided to become a screenwriter mm -hmm. and you worked on a film called The Siege. Yeah. And The Siege was, it, I think 1998 was when The Siege right. became uh, released. And it was about uh, jihadist attacks on New York City. Right. You also wrote, by the way, later a book about a pandemic that a, a deadly pandemic of like months before COVID-19 so we, I guess I should ask you what you're writing about next so I can prepare <laughs> myself but what caused you to write that script because I think there was reporting that led you to write about these things and what were you thinking when you saw the bombings of the embassies by Al-Qaeda and the USS Colon ultimately 
9-11. I'm wondering how you processed all these things, having thought so deeply about it. I had a friend, Linda Obst, who was a movie producer, and she, she had an idea about a woman in the CIA. Because that's not a... It's not a real idea. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a notion. And uh, so, uh, it, it was in the FBI she had the idea. So, I started thinking about FBI, CIA, the, the Berlin Wall has come down, the Soviet Union's collapsed. How relevant are they? You know, who's the enemy? And, uh, and I started looking into the FBI, and I realized they had a real enemy. It was the CIA. And, you know, these agencies hate each other. Yeah. And they were quarreling over who had uh, priority on prosecuting or following terrorism in the United States. And the CIA badly wanted that. And the FBI said, no, this is our jurisdiction. And uh, so there was a lot of bad acting between the two. And this was, this was what you knew before you wrote the screenplay. Yeah. It, was, it became the architecture. It was not about... America fighting Soviet Union or, you know, whatever. It was about two government agencies faced with a problem. The problem is terrorism. And honestly, we hadn't had that kind of terrorist attack in America up until that time. But I posed myself the question, what would it be like if terror struck in America? Suppose it came to New York City. How would we behave? You know, we look at the French, you look at the, 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 the Brits, you know, where they had these terrorist attacks in the cities. What if it took place in New York? So the, that was, you know, the idea that there was a FBI agent who was then played by Denzel Washington and a woman in the CIA who is Annette Bening. Uh, you know, they are fighting against each other. And, uh, you know, it was weird because so much of what I wrote about materialized almost, you know, like... No, I know. Well, 9-11 happened. Did you know instantly that you were going to write a book about how that happened? Pretty much I did because, um, you know, for one thing, I'd already been touched by terrorism when, when um, you know, the the movie came out in November 98, but in August, trailers for the movie started appearing around the world and provoked a reaction. Uh, there was an attack on a planet Hollywood in South, South Africa, Africa yeah. and two people were killed and a little girl lost her leg. And this Islamist group took credit and said they were doing it because of the movie The Siege. So, you know, I always felt like I had blood on my hands and the movie wasn't even out yet. And uh, then uh, when... When the 9-11 happened, I thought two things. One, that I was scarred by that bombing that nobody knows about, but, you know, that, that had been affected by my my writing. And secondly, I had lived in Egypt for two years. I, that, I wanted to ask about that experience and how that played into this. Well, I, I had a wonderful time in Egypt, and I love my students. And uh, it was a time when we had no diplomatic relations with Egypt at the time. Uh, there were practically no Americans uh, there. The president of the university was a CIA agent because they had nowhere else to put him. And uh, I and I spoke some Arabic. You know, I lived in a Muslim country. I felt like I knew more than your average reporter about the Arab world. And so I felt obligated you know, it felt called, almost like a mission. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. 
You spent years over in the Middle East. I, I spent five years, most of it traveling, and um, in Middle East, North Africa, and uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, South China. You know, just it is, even Paris and London. You know, there were uh, Berlin. You know, there was. Uh, I went to Spain during the Madrid bombings. So I was, yeah. It was a long, lonely time. Six hundred interview. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes dozens of interviews of the same person. I have a theory about journalism where there are two axes, you know, one, the horizontal, which is talk to everybody you know. It's like the basic principle of, you know, anybody that's involved in it, you try to talk to. And that accounts for the 600 names. But some people are just more insightful or more candid or Or more knowledgeable. Yeah. Companionable. Right. And, uh, and that's the vertical axis because you can go to those people again and again and get deeper, a deeper level of understanding than just a broad consensus. You traced really the history that led up to bin Laden, Al Qaeda, and the acts of September 11th, going back really a generation. Yeah. And what was striking about it is the level of specificity you had about the nature of about conversations that were had sometimes the dates on which those conversations were had and what emerged were really deep portraits you know osama bin laden will forever be a one-dimensional figure in american in the american consciousness a monster he's a much more nuanced figure in your book as is everybody you write about and that flowed obviously from lots of reporting and yeah. conversations. You know, one of the uh, kind of unsettling interviews that I, one of my vertical sources, you know, uh, Jamal Khalifa, he was um, bin Laden's brother-in-law. It's scarcely an exclusive category. There were 50 brothers and yes. sisters. But um, he was, Jamal was married to bin Laden's favorite sister, Sheikha. And um, I couldn't interview Sheikha because, you know, she was a very conservative Muslim woman, but he would interview her for me. Mm-hmm. And every fourth day, because he had four wives, you know, he'd go visit and with a list of my questions. And uh, I was very fond of him. And we got to be pretty good friends. And he and ultimately he, was killed. Yeah, he was killed. But he was bin Laden's best friend, too. So there was this uh, doubleness that, you know, I because Jamal was a dear guy, it awakened in me the realization that Bin Laden had a side of himself that responded to the same qualities that I did. And so in some ways, you know, we have that alike. And it helped open my mind to other qualities that he might have that we're not really paying attention to. Were you scared during this, did, what, did you, were you frightened? I mean, you were basically diving deep into uh, this history at a time when Osama bin Laden was still with us. Yeah. I wasn't, I, let me put it this way. I try not to think about that. When I was in Saudi Arabia, I would, uh, you know, I was there for quite a while and I would change uh, apartments and cars occasionally, you know, just to, you know, improve my chances. But it was not quite. The, you know, when um, Daniel Pearl was murdered, apparently by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, Wall Street Journal yeah. reporter. And um, things changed. You know, I think a lot of reporters like me thought we had a, a certain kind of immunity. But um, I flew to Pakistan, and the uh, first person I interviewed uh, was uh, Khalid Khawaja who uh, Marianne Pearl holds him partly responsible for Danny's death because he was broadcasting that Danny was Jewish. But he was my first interview that afternoon, and um, I was a little anxious about it, you know. Uh, but he was a great source. He knew, you know, he, he was on good terms with the Al-Qaeda community, and he put me in touch with some incredibly valuable sources. So I understood why Danny talked to him. And uh, and later, Kawaja himself was murdered brutally. So it's, you know. Was your family worried? 
Yes, that's no, that's, a, that, I, that's another thing I didn't want to think about. Um, I, I, You're married. You have two children. Yeah, and they were anxious, and um, and I was gone so much. You know, my main emotion I think was just loneliness, homesickness. But um, how old were your kids then? Were they grown? Uh, my son was in college and my daughter was just getting out of high getting still mm-hmm. in high school and of course it took over five years so you know I, i'm not sure at the beginning and end of when uh they mm-hmm. but, but but a huge chunk of time a long time yeah and uh, i remember when when uh, when i finished the book my wife said who are you going to dedicate it to and i said I'm not going to dedicate it to anybody. You know, when I, I, you know, so many people died. I'm going to say thanks to my agent. She said, I don't think you realize what you put your family through. Hmm. <laughs> so I, I quickly ch- changed my That's mind. Who was going to get the dedication? Yeah. How long have you been married? Uh, 53 years. Yeah. Well, that's how you get to be married for 53 years. We're picking up on those clues. <laughs> well, it was pretty, pretty blunt clue, I would think. You wrote about how the unwillingness to cooperate between the FBI, the CIA, State Department, ultimately deprived them of the combined information they would have that would have allowed them to thwart the 9/11 attack, and that's the tragic sort of conclusion of your book. And you wrote about particularly about a uh, an F Agent O'Neill, yeah, uh, the FBI, and such a poignant story. Talk about him. I grieved for him yeah. when uh, I read your book. When, after 9-11, I, I had to figure out a way to find a central character that could tell the story. You know, his life would tell the story. And I thought I would find it in the obituaries. And I began looking online at the, the uh, these obituaries were streaming in, you know. And on the Washington Post site, they had John O'Neill head of counterterrorism at uh, the FBI. Coincidentally, the same job that Denzel Washington had in hmm. the siege, right? And so that was Extraordinary. Weird. Yeah. And um, so the, the obit made him sound like kind of a doofus in some ways. He, he had been washed out of the FBI. He had taken some classified information out of the office. And... Um, and he lost his job. And, you know, his job was to get bin Laden. So uh, he took this job as the head of security at the World Trade Center. And so instead Started of getting... Started two weeks before September yeah, 11th. Instead of getting bin Laden, bin Laden got him. And I thought that was ironic. But, I, you know, the more I found out about him, the more I realized it was a Greek tragedy. This was a tragic hero. You know, he flawed, very flawed. I mean, you know, (laughs) to the extent that at his funeral, uh, his wife came and then four women who claimed to be engaged to him. Uh, It was perhaps the most catastrophic funeral imaginable. (laughs) Uh, And uh, but, you know, he turned out to be a far more interesting and tortured and and charming individual than I could have imagined just looking at that obituary. He turned out to represent so much of America that was flawed and yet earnest and sincere and boisterous and fun-loving. And, you know, he was, I, I, I was so lucky to discover him. And it gave, you know, the, the tragic heft that I needed for the book. You told his story with great poignancy and the heroism and the flaws yeah. came through. You, after this book was published, you wrote a one-person, a one-man play, yeah. which you performed. Yeah. I guess on Broadway, right? Off-Broadway. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that, because one of the things about reporters is, you know, you're always trained to say, you're not the story. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, here you are putting yourself on stage. And I guess it comes under the category of storytelling. Was it a hard decision to say, oh, yeah, I think I'll go out there on a stage and uh, and perform? You know, I had seen Anna DeVere Smith do mm-hmm. Fires in the Mirror at the Public Theater. Uh, I think it was in 1995. And I was so 
awakened by her ability to put journalism into theater. And I love theater. Uh, you know, I had written some plays, but it never had occurred to me that, you know, that my journalism experience could be the play. And um, so I wrote this play and the New Yorker put it up first for the New Yorker Festival. And then I got an offer right off to to do a, do a run of it. Um, and part of me, you know, it was a way of avoiding a endless book tour. I said, let them come to me. <laughs> but also, I, to be honestly, I loved doing that show. I loved being on stage. It was always... You did another as well, didn't I you? I did a one uh, called The Human Scale that was about Israel and Gaza. Mm-hmm. If you remember uh, that young uh, Israeli soldier named Galad Shalit yes. who had been kidnapped by Hamas. And it was about the question that it poses is, how does one life, that of Gilad Shalit, equal a thousand Palestinian prisoners? You know, the, the imbalance in the value of life says so much about the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you, just as a, as a journalist, as someone raised in journalism, about your method of writing, because you gather so much material. I mean, it's so it's obvious in your work how much research is involved yeah. and how much interviewing and so on. My method uh, has evolved over the years. You know, for instance, you know, note cards are, are a part. Of, you know, basic to me. You know, I, as a young reporter, I would try to start a story, and I think, who told me this thing about you know, X, Y, or Z, and I. I have to go through all of my notes again, try to find, you know, where did I, where did I hear that and, or read all the books that I had in, on my desk. And finally, I thought, stop, I'm just going to go through all this material and make note cards. It's going to take forever. And, um, well, it does take a long time. But the, So you go through your notes after an interview or after doing a, some piece of research and you take what you think are the most relevant and yeah. important parts, and you put them on note cards. Typically, I will highlight, you know, the parts of the, you know, like in a book, if you look at all these books over here on terrorism, you know, they're, you know, they're highlighted all the way through. And um, then uh, I'll go and make note cards on the computer usually, although sometimes I lie in bed and handwrite uh, the note cards. And... Um, you know they they accumulate. Uh, you know I I don't know how many thousands of note cards I have on Looming Tower, but the trick is that eventually you you know you have to index them. You have to categorize them. And you know an example is I knew I was going to write about Osama bin Laden. What about him? Well, I'm going to write about his family. Well, who and his family? Well, I'm going to write about his wives. I'm going to write about his father. I'm going to write about his mother. So each of those is under bin Laden family. There's Osama bin Laden. Under Osama bin Laden, there is wives. Under wives, there Mm -hmm. is Najla. And And you can go and find them. Yeah, it's right there. I Mm -hmm. mean, just once you've done that, you've already essentially outlined your book. Because you didn't take notes on everything. You put on note cards the things that were mm-hmm. relevant. So you've boiled that mass of information down to a digestible form. You mentioned earlier that uh, that you play the piano. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, and you, you've been in a band that you helped start, a blues band. Right. Hoodoo, is that the? Hoodoo, yeah. And how often do you guys play? Well, we have a regular monthly gig. Uh, at the Skylark Lounge, and then uh, we take off the summers, but we we do other gigs. We had a charitable event just a couple of weeks ago. Bunch of old white guys playing the blues? Well, you know, we pay homage to the music, yeah. and, um, you know, we get... It's interesting to me, a lot of this music is stuff that we grew up with, and our audiences have never heard it. Mm-hmm. Even stuff like Buddy Holly, you'd yeah. think is so much a part of the Texas musical tradition, there are lots of young people come and they don't know that music. And believe me, when we go out of the state, nobody knows it. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And uh, how long have you been playing the piano? I took up the piano when I was 38 and a half in order to play Great Balls of Fire on my 40th birthday. <laughs> it was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. And 
I I went through a succession of piano teachers that's really quite embarrassing. Um, you know, a lot of them. I was very promiscuous. And then in 1995, um, I started studying with Floyd Domino. And Floyd is a country boogie player. He played with Willie and Merle and Waylon and the Sleep at the Wheel. Yes. Which is how I got to know him. And um, the, I had just been fired by my last teacher. He told me I had no talent. <laughs> I mean, he used those words. And it was shattering. And I know I don't have talent, but I'm persistent. You know, that's I will keep at it. I didn't touch the piano for a year or so. And I, I called Floyd and um, asked if he would consider taking me on. And he said, come over and play a song and we'll talk about it. So I went over. But I was still so shattered, I couldn't play in front of him. So he went into the bathroom. And so he, he listened to me. And this was our arrangement for a couple of months. I would go over and play the piano and he'd sit in the bathroom. And uh, But uh, it's interesting to think that in my middle life, this was, you know, 28 years ago that we started playing um, that some individual could come along and give me, restore my confidence and uh, help me find a place in the world of music. I'm never going to be accomplished. I'll never be as good a musician as anybody in my band, but, um, but I'm getting a tremendous amount of joy out of it. And, and I've started writing music, you know, uh, this novel, I would hope one day, that it will be a musical. You tried on Mr. Texas. It had a lot of different iterations. You tried it as a, a musical, right? And you, yes, I, I. It began as a as a screenplay that never got picked up. And as I read it, I thought, gee, it would be a great one. Well, the weird thing is, if we had just, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine. If we had just written novels all along, they'd probably all be movies now. <laughs> but you know, we went into it the wrong way. But you know, as I think a lot of young writers give up when they have an idea and they write it in one form or another and it doesn't go anywhere. There are other doors you can turn to. And this is a great example because uh, the story is the same, but it started out as a, as a movie script. And then a friend of mine said, why don't you turn it into a play? And then he said, we've already rented the theater. <laughs> Very chutzpah, you know. Yeah. And uh, so four months later, uh, we had a, a production. And we had two productions in Austin. And a Broadway producer came down, and uh, Margot Lyon, a very distinguished figure. And she said, it should be a musical. So I started writing music with my friend Marsha Ball. And yeah. then she changed her mind and said, it should be a television series. So I sold a pilot to HBO, <laughs> and then they fired my producer and, and dumped all his projects. And uh, in the middle of the pandemic, I'm so, you know, I love this project so much. And I asked my agent, what should I do with this? He said, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I wrote eight episodes of a podcast, and then Marsha and I and my son Gordon, we wrote more than 50 songs we had the best time i just got to say whether <laughs> this ever happens or not you know but finally i thought wait a minute i'm just going to write this as a novel because i know i can write it as a novel and i'm very i have to say after all those forays uh, into different versions of it it enriched the story so much because, you know, with if you're writing a movie or a play, for instance, there there is no narrative. It's only characters and scenes. Yes. And, uh, you know, but as a nonfiction journalist, you know, writing narrative is what I can do. So putting all those talents together or let's say the tools that uh, different forms of writing allow you to experiment with, that was very helpful in writing uh, Mr. Texas. Well, it really comes alive it, as you do in your nonfiction, you do transport people. It's really a fun book. I hope people read it as I hope they read all that you write. You never disappoint, and you always uh, learn stuff. We learn stuff with you. Well, thank you, David. It means a lot to me for yeah. you to say that. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. 
The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.